0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 387, The Douche's Cast. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at the Podcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Denise, Tom, and Catherine for signing up already. War was coming. That much was clear. If Harold had worried that the comet was a bad omen, by now, he knew for sure. Word would have reached him that the Pope had declared that the church was on the side of Duke William of Normandy in his demand for England. And at about the same time, Harold's idiot brother had been raiding his way along many of the sink ports of England, stopping only to bring war upon Mercia and Northumbria at the same time, And then when that genius plan failed, he skulked off to Scotland to seek an audience with King Malcolm Canmore, the same guy who was probably still holding a grudge with Harold over that broken betrothal. Things were starting to go really badly. And so King Harold II sent out the call for his firds. But he seems to have only called upon southern England. Furthermore, The call itself doesn't seem to have gone much beyond 50 miles inland. And as such, if you were a villager living in central Mercia, you might not have even been aware that England was under threat of invasion. So why did he do this? Well, remember that Harold II wasn't a member of the royal family, at least not the one that traditionally held the crown. He was instead the scion of the powerful House of Godwin, a southern dynasty whose power was concentrated in Wessex since before it was even the House of Godwin. Harold's grandfather, for example, was an influential southern noble, you know, before he turned to a life of piracy. So the House of Godwin's roots and its base of social power was in the south. So it's likely that Harold knew that when he called for support, it was Wessex who would enthusiastically answer the call. And it turns out he was right. Whether the Godwinson was their earl or their king, the people of the south would do their duty by the leader of this house, which had governed them for generations. And so thanes, churls, birdsmen, and assorted fighting age men answered Harold's call and headed to the southern coast. But beyond Wessex, the House of Godwin's influence was far weaker. And in many ways, the House of Godwin had no one to blame but themselves. Years ago, when Harold was just the Earl of Wessex, he invaded Wales and he began a war that only ended when he brought the Welsh King Gruffydd's head to Winchester. Now for Harold, the Earl, this was an enormous victory. And it had likely cemented his position as the preeminent noble in England, and the natural choice for the throne should King Edward die childless. So this victory was part of what propelled him into the power that Harold now held. But King Gruffith was once an ally of the House of Godwin. He'd even led an army to support Harold's older brother, Swain. And so Harold bringing war upon this old ally of his family wasn't just a problem between him and the Welsh. For some of the English elite, this would have been a breach of honor that would be difficult to forget. I mean, could you really trust a man who assassinated an old family friend? Furthermore, King Gruffydd of Wales was an active political force in his own right, and he had allies of his own. Key among them was the ruling family of Mercia, which was then headed by Earl Elfgar. You see, despite the long history of sporadic cross-border conflicts, King Gruffith and several regions of Wales in general shared a sense of history and connection with Mercia. And you'll recall that in the border regions in particular, the cultural and political boundaries between the Mercians and the Welsh was more than a little soupy. So, the assassination of King Gruffith was unlikely to sit well in Mercia, nor, I suspect, would the attempted genocide brought upon the Welsh people by the invading English army. And you'll remember that that army was led by Harold and his brother Tostig, who himself was also actively feuding with the Mercian dynasty. And that feud also had a role to play in this conflict because the Godwinsons weren't just making war upon Wales. They were also depriving their Mercian rivals of a key ally and then using that victory to elevate themselves above all others in the kingdom. So I think it's quite likely the Mercians remembered and were not happy. And that wasn't the only earldom in England where Harold and Tostig had made enemies. When Tostig was installed as the Earl of Northumbria, he was so ruthless that the entire region rebelled against him. And that animosity wasn't limited to Tostig. It appears to have extended to the entire House of Godwin, because the moment that Harold was proclaimed king, he was forced to travel north and personally beseech the Northumbrians for their support and fealty. And the subtext of the record indicates that they agreed only grudgingly, and only because there were already concerns about a foreign invasion. Making matters worse, governing over Northumbria was Morkar, the other son of King Griffith's old ally, Earl Elfgar of Mercia. Meaning that pretty much everyone north of Wessex had tangible reasons to beef with the House of Godwin and was also likely to hold political and dynastic grudges against that very same house. So at least for me, I'm not at all surprised that Harold kept his call for support to the south. Wessex, was likely the only part of England that Harold felt confident would accept his leadership. So, in addition to having a handful of rent-seeking merchants in place of an actual navy, Harold was also working with perhaps half a kingdom's worth of land forces, and he had to hope that that would be enough to stave off an invasion. So tensions were running high. Meanwhile, across the channel, William was dealing with his own trust issues. His barons had given sworn statements promising forces to fight on his behalf. And William knew to have the nerds write all those oaths down so they couldn't deny them later. But the thing with Norman barons is that they only took these oaths seriously if things were working in their favor and if they felt the Duke was too powerful to cross. If William started to look weak, then these oaths wouldn't be worth the parchment they were written on. And it wasn't just the barons that were a problem. Even William's inner circle was infested with snakes. I mean, sure, he could trust William Fitzosborne, probably. I mean, that man was his seneschal, and William had known him most of his life. And Roger de Montgomery had given him no reason for distrust. But William had also made a few enemies by this point in his about 40 years of life. And many of them were sitting right on his borders. And those were just the enemies he knew about. The real danger might come from the enemies he mistook for allies. For example, Count Eustace of Boulogne had a claim on the throne of England that was at least as strong as William's, if not stronger. And that man had been all too eager to take part in this invasion. And as for Vicon Amory of Tours, well, it wasn't all that long ago that Amory was fighting against William on behalf of William's rival, Count Joffrey Martel of Anjou. So why was Amory here now? What game might he be playing? So, as William was working out the details of his invasion and forming alliances that would enable him to undertake this gargantuan campaign, I'm guessing that things were getting a little tense around the situation room because William, who wasn't trusting at the best of times, was probably getting a little paranoid. But... The scale of his ambitions meant that William was also in no place to turn down any support that was offered. And central to this whole plan was the papacy. When the ecclesiastical orders discussed William's planned invasion, it was sometimes referred to as a publicum bellum. And that's incredibly important because it means that for the church, William's invasion was being framed as a war to depose a tyrant who was disturbing the Christian peace. So it was a holy war. And this same classification was referenced later after the conquest when the papal legate absolved William's army of all the sins that they committed while taking part in this invasion. So Pope Alexander II and Cardinal Hildebrand were using the Norman invasion of England to further codify the belief that violence, military invasion, and occupation were valid ways to advance church goals and obtain religious supremacy. So this public umbellum and the subsequent so-called penitential ordinance that was afforded to William's army wasn't just ushering in the crusading age. It was also having a long-term effect that would continue to plague us to this day. And foreshadowing the tragedies that come from all of this, King Harold really couldn't be understood reasonably to be disturbing any Christian peace. A look at his reign shows absolutely no indication that he was doing anything of the sort. And the fact was that this invasion, with all its subsequent killing, would be the true disruption of that peace. But that doesn't appear to have mattered all that much to the church. Because as we discussed in the last episode, the church might have been publicly talking about peace, but their actual goal was power. They wanted the Pope to reign supreme. And in their efforts to obtain it, they were now fully entering the business of colonization. And as is the way with colonization, the legal framework that justified it was, at best, a fig leaf. Nobody involved cared all that much if any of the claims were true or not. They simply needed an excuse to get that army moving. And for William, by accepting this papal support and adopting their cause of war, he was reaping benefit after benefit. In particular, the entrance of the church transformed this war from one of personal pride and a desire for a crown to a war for religion. A war for peace. And because the intended audience of this pitch were the illiterate, violent, and religiously simplistic knighted nobility of Europe, this was actually a really strong sales pitch. And then William made one more promise to his potential followers. He let it be known that those who fought for him would be rewarded with English lands. William was buying himself a mercenary army on the promise that he would divvy out the stolen lands of his future subjects. So you could talk all you want about how this was a war for peace, and how you simply wanted to install the rightful and just king of England and oust a tyrant. But right from the start, the plan here was to kill a whole bunch of people, take their homes, disregard all of their local traditions and laws, and then hand over their land to their new oppressors. And the fact of the matter is that everyone involved in the planning and promotion of this invasion knew what it was, regardless of what lies they were feeding the rabble. But those lies did have a purpose. Telling them that this was a fight for Christ's peace, that also had the potential of earning the fighters some real estate, was exactly what the chivalric knights wanted to hear. So heavily armed men, along with their retainers, began to pour into Normandy. Everyone from knights to foot soldiers began to show up on William's doorstep. They were coming as far as Flanders and Aquitaine. And actually, even though Duke Conan of Britain had recently threatened Duke William, a surprising number of knights were also coming from Brittany as well. Why? Well, because feuds and politics weren't the main driving force for knights, especially for knights who didn't have any lands of their own. And Brittany at this point was chock full of landless knights. And here was the Pope and Duke William saying that this invasion was a good way to get a plot of land. And that if they failed or fell in battle, well, the whole thing was sanctioned by God. So if you didn't end up with land, you'd wind up in heaven. Either way, you win. And so warriors, even from rival duchies, were streaming into Normandy. And that meant That because of this spectacular pitch, suddenly, the majority of William's army were foreigners who had come on the promise of future wealth and riches. And that was a situation that probably made William a little uneasy. These men had no cultural, historical, or honor-based reason to serve William beyond the promise of payment. And so the Duke suddenly had the tiger by the tail. And the fact was that preparing for this invasion was a long process. And if those assembled knights began to get bored, then things could end up going very, very badly. And as the days of preparation dragged into weeks, the Duke and his closest allies had to devise a way to keep morale up. So they began to hold rallies. Now, By this point, William wasn't the only one who was probably wondering if he'd bitten off more than he could chew. There was also Rome, because thanks to the Pope sanctioning this entire venture, the papacy and Normandy were now deeply politically linked. By having the papacy directly involved in and sanctioning warfare, Pope Alexander II had placed himself in the middle of an incredibly controversial position there were many within the church who did not like this development at all. Similarly, there were secular rulers who didn't like what they were seeing here either because more than a few of them would have realized immediately that they could be the next ruler that the papacy declared to be religiously fit for holy invasion. So the success of Hildebrand's theocratic vision for the church and for the papacy was now weirdly hinged on the success of William's invasion and also on the fulfillment of William's promised future fealty to the Pope. And so as the days dragged on, it likely became clear that Pope Alexander and Cardinal Hildebrand were really out on the raggedy edge with this one. And sitting in the middle of all of this was William the Man a man who was suddenly being transformed as if through magic from the unpopular bastard son of Duke Robert, whose own family had repeatedly tried to depose him, to the favored son of the church and the papally sanctioned legitimate ruler of both Normandy and England. And that reality, combined with the papacy's politically tenuous position, meant that William was in a very good position to seek further support from Rome in any future endeavors. Because this policy of wielding violence and warfare to promote Christian interests was now inextricably linked to his successes and his future endeavors. If he failed in this invasion, it would be quite the black eye for Hildebrand's entire theological structure. And I wonder if Hildebrand and the Pope realized exactly what they were getting into here when they did it. Now, at some point around here, William probably realized that he couldn't plan an invasion, deal with shady alliances, keep the Pope in his pocket, and construct ships while also handling the day-to-day affairs of the Duchy. And so he decided to delegate, and he appointed his wife, Duchess Matilda, as Regent of Normandy. And to ensure that she had some support in this task, he appointed her also the most Norman of councils. She was given two Rogers and a Robert. There was Roger Beaumont, Roger de Montgomery, and then there was the Duchess and Duke's eldest son, Robert. Now, Robert was only about 12 by this point, but he was still very much involved in the Regency Council, as he was Duke William's official heir, having been designated two years earlier. But William, not wanting to leave any doubts when he was about to go on such a dangerous invasion, had designated Robert as his heir a second time in 1066. And on this occasion, William personally saw to it that the assembled Norman aristocrats swore public oaths of fealty to young Robert. William also ordered Robert to give some gifts to the church and had those gifts linked to his upcoming invasion. There were also other Norman knights and aristocrats who were recorded doing the same thing. Which makes sense. This plan was just crazy enough that you might as well try also greasing the palms of Big J. I mean, anything could help, right? And so all of this was building in Normandy. While across the channel, King Harold was hastily trying to organize a coastal defense, despite the fact that he appears to have lacked support from the Midlands and the North. Now, in addition to gathering land forces, Harold was also desperately trying to put together a navy which I'm sure was much more difficult after Tostig had attacked and looted the various sink ports along the south. But by hook or by crook, the king did manage to gather a fleet, and he assembled them along with a sizable portion of the southern Ferd at the Isle of Wight, the same little island that had accepted the Godwinsons during their earlier rebellion against Edward and the same island who had very recently paid Tostig a sizable Dane guild in hopes that he would kindly f**k off and die. So this must have been a weird visit for Harold, given that so much had changed since he had last gathered here with his family. His father Godwin was dead. Swain was dead. Wolfnoth was imprisoned by Duke William. Tostig had gone completely batshit and was now trying to get him killed. Edith, I think, was around, but she wasn't too pleased with him these days since she'd been sidelined. So really, all he had left from this point, from his earlier adventure, were his two brothers, Girth and Leofwina His once large and powerful family was diminished. And I have to imagine he felt it here, at the site of one of their most famous reunions. But now wasn't a good time for melancholy memories. Harold had a kingdom to run, and a fleet to assemble. Now, we're not given precise records of Harold's navy, and specifically how it was gathered. But we're told it was enormous. I've read estimates that it may have numbered three or four hundred ships. If true, that would mean that Harold had gone well past the sink ports and decided to exercise his royal authority to press large numbers of the ships in the kingdom into service by the summer of 1066. And this would have been a move that would likely irritate a lot of the owners of those ships, who would have been merchants, traders, and magnates in the south. But it was also a necessary decision. William's army was continually growing. And all along the banks of the River Deve, there were ships under construction. So this attack could come at any moment. And knowing that, you might wonder why he chose the Isle of Wight as his base of operations and not Dover or any of the other ports on the coast. Well, here's the thing about early medieval naval warfare in England. It really wasn't warfare. Up to this point, the only recorded English naval battle that took place out at sea was in the ninth century under King Alfred. He'd taken his fleet out to sea and accidentally ran into a bunch of Danes, and everyone was surprised enough that they just tried to fight it out then and there. But that's it. And the reason for that is because it's actually really hard to intercept ships at open sea, especially when you're reliant on sails and don't have, you know, GPS and satellites helping you plot an intersecting course. The fact is that one of the biggest obstacles of naval battles is actually just trying to find the ships and get close enough to actually fight. It was so difficult, in fact, that about 500 years later, Sir Francis Drake would suggest intercepting the Spanish Armada out at sea, and everyone thought it was a wildly ambitious idea and wondered if something so crazy would even work. So the odds that Harold and his fleet would be able to go out to sea, find William's fleet, and get close enough to attack them before they landed on the beach were just astronomical. So Harold's fleet wasn't assembled to intercept William's fleet out at sea. He had gathered his fleet for a different purpose. The most likely strategy was to actually allow William to make landfall. Once there, Harold would have some of his land forces hold the Normans off as best as they could by harassing and laying ambushes to slow them down. And as that was happening, Harold would use the ragtag English fleet to transport the actual bulk of his army to William's landing site. Once there, they could seize or destroy the ships and then position their army behind William's and force him to fight a battle on two fronts. Assuming that was the strategy, it was a sound one, and the Isle of Wight would have been an ideal launching ground for that. You see, William could have only made the crossing with a southern wind, and his launching point was almost directly across the channel from the Isle of Wight. So the odds were good that regardless of whether the winds were coming from the southeast or the southwest, Harold and his fleet would be able to reach William's landing spot relatively quickly as they'd be able to tack the wind in a similar way as the Normans. So, with perhaps as much as half of his furd spread out to keep watch along the southern shore of England, the remainder of his furd, along with his fleet positioned at the Isle of Wight, was ready for a quick mobilization. And now... They just had to wait for William to make his move. Any day now. Yup. Any day now. Where the hell were they? Well, the fact was that things like this take time. True, the Normans had been constructing ships all year. And by July, the forces for this invasion had begun to assemble at the River Diva. But just because knights were assembling didn't mean that they were actually ready to invade. In fact, in the harbors all around the river, there were still ships being constructed and we're told that the fleet wasn't ready for invasion until fully August 12th. And given this date, it's possible that William had intended for his invasion to coincide with the Feast of the Assumption of the Virgin Mary on August 15th. Again, this was a crazy idea, so adopting a kitchen sink approach to making Big J happy was not a bad idea. But despite the fact that the fleet was ready on the 12th, they didn't launch. Instead, we're told the fleet was delayed for over a month. Why? Well, it was probably a combination of factors. Now, the biggest one would have been wind. Looking at the bio-tapestry, we see ships that look very much like Drakars. But in truth they were likely cop ships, which are similar to Drakars, but larger, wider, and with higher sides. They're the Chibi Drakars that I mentioned in the earlier episode. And the majority of the ships that were being assembled and were being constructed on the River Diva would have been simple, single-sailed barges. Nothing fancy, but they get the job done. And as for the size of this fleet... Well, Chronicler Wace estimates that the fleet was about 700 ships, which, given the type of ships that are believed to have been launched, that would have made for an invasion force of about 14,000 men, with perhaps as much as a third of that consisting of mounted knights. So that's a lot of horses barging around. And if they wanted to get them all to go to the same place at the same time, they would need favorable weather. In particular based on where they'd assembled, they would need a southerly wind. That would allow them to cross the channel efficiently and also have a relatively easy time tacking to reach their choice of landing site. But getting there was only one part of the problem. There was also the fighting that would take place after the men and horses made landfall. And you might recall how William of Poitiers spoke of how Harold had spies in Normandy. We don't know if that was actually true, But it probably was. What's a near certainty, though, is that Normandy had spies in England. I mean, the character of Duke William alone would have led to that eventuality. But beyond that, there is also the sheer number of Normans who were brought into England during the reign of King Edward. And there's also the fact that William knew about Harold's crowning probably before many in Northumbria did. I'm not certain of much, but I'm absolutely certain that William had spies in England. And I honestly wouldn't be surprised if Poitiers accusing Harold of employing spies was based largely on projection. And an awareness of the military and tactical situation in southern England would certainly explain why William held his fleet back for a month, even though we're told that they were ready for invasion. Because estimates are that Harold had populated the South with over 10,000 members of the fyrd, and perhaps as many as 400 ships. This means that a trap had been laid for Normandy. And it seems that William was aware of this and had chosen to wait it out. The trouble, though, was that waiting also had costs for the bastard. He was stuck holding the reins of an army that consisted of thousands of knights and foot soldiers, many of whom were nothing more than mercs, and all of whom were suited up and looking forward to a fight which meant the Norman countryside was now teeming with highly violent ignorant jerks just milling around looking for something to do. And let's be honest, camping out near Con was not what they signed up for. Furthermore, a month-long riverside vacation might sound nice to you, but this wasn't a nice holiday chateau. This was a cramped assembly of thousands upon thousands of dudes. Dudes who were indoctrinated into a society that elevated interpersonal conflict, carried a brittle sense of honor, and taught them that violence was the best way to solve your problems, especially any problems involving honor. William was hosting Woodstock from Hell. Imagine, if you will, the worst frat kegger in history. And like any frat kegger, when you get enough aggressive meatheads in a single location, eventually there's gotta be some messy nonsense that ends in a fistfight. It's like a law of physics. It always happens. And unfortunately for the regular Normans, not the knights, but the ones with actual valuable skills like growing crops, crafting tools, and building the ships that these jerks would need for their crossing, well, they were exactly the kind of nerds that Sir Stephen might want to torment for an evening while he passed the time. So William had a problem on his hands. Not that he was particularly concerned about the nerds and weaklings. No, the actual issue was he needed the ships and the crops. And when Sir Stephen got drunk and started having his horse spin cookies in the wheat fields, that meant that there was less grain to feed the forces. And when the shipwright couldn't come into work because Sir Ralph decided to break his arm for beating him at a drinking game, well, that slowed down ship production times. William wasn't against mess, but he wanted to make a mess in England, not on the shores of France. And so into this situation, we have William of Poitiers, who unprompted starts talking specifically about this issue, but he does it in a very Poitiers way. Now, to be fair, he's a very important source for us. But Poitiers is also an unceasing hype man for his Duke. And his panegyric has the hilarious tendency of relentlessly polishing any turd that might help the Norman cause. And at about this point, Poitiers starts talking out of nowhere about how incredible William was at controlling his men and how, quote, the crops waited undisturbed for the sickle without being trampled by the pride of the knights or ravaged by the greed of the plunderer a wealthy and unarmed man watching a swarm of soldiers without fear might follow his horse singing wherever he would, end quote. And I don't know, that just feels a bit suspect to me. Like when your toddler runs into the room and shouts, I didn't eat the cookies. I mean, if Z and I did a shop talk and she suddenly out of nowhere praised me for wearing clothes, you'd probably start wondering what was going on during those other shop talks. So I suspect there actually was a problem with knights plundering, and with other knights trampling fields to impress their friends with their sick horsey jay-turns. I also suspect that William came down on them like a ton of bricks, and made a few examples. But Poitiers, like any good hype man, likely realized that it sounded way better if he just skipped to the end, the part where everyone was terrified of angering the duke. And this would be in keeping with another suspect line of Poitiers, where he speaks of how generous the Duke was to his soldiers as they awaited the crossing. Because if the Duke forbid pillaging and then strictly enforced it as the delay stretched into weeks, he would have had no choice but to provide food for the assembled army himself. Or he would have to allow them to break his commands, which would make him look weak. So chances are, he acquired a ton of food and made it available to his men because he had no other choice but to do that. And then Poitiers did his job, and he spun that into heroism. I mean, it is possible that Poitiers was just being entirely truthful, and that this invasion force was the first chivalric army in history to peacefully hang around for over a month and mind their own business. But personally, I'm not willing to believe that based entirely on the word of Mr. Harold is a sneaky, spy-loving usurper and my Norman Duke is the real heir to England who's only interested in honor and God. Also, that Englishman was threatening to defile his sister's own corpse by sending her FedEx. Poitier is important, but Poitiers definitely has his own spin. So I think the fields outside of Cannes were a bit dicey for a few months. But however it was done, despite the fact that the fleet was ready to sail on August 12, we're told that it was delayed for about a month, which meant that William and the assorted leadership were left trying to keep Sir Stefan from roughing up the locals. Meanwhile, Tostig's Scottish summer vacay wasn't going well either. It turned out that King Malcolm didn't have any interest in going to war, at least not for this guy. And so Tostig probably decided he was wasting his time. So he hopped back on his boats, what was left of them, and headed for Scandinavia. Now Tostig's travel itinerary is distinctly Tostig. We have a number of documents that give evidence of his trip, but the picture that they paint is a mess. They all seem to provide different timelines. And so it's hard to know precisely when he arrived at some of these locations and Denmark is one of those destinations, and no matter which way you tell the story, you're going to have some records that contradict the timeline. But at some point, Tostig eventually made his way to the court of his cousin, King Swain Esthresen of Denmark. And this could have been one of his first ports of call after leaving Flanders, or it could have happened later, much later, including at this point in his story. His timeline is inscrutable. However, We're fairly certain that at some point, Tostig entered his cousin's court and asked for support in his war against his brother. And he didn't stop there. He also pressed Swain to fight for his own claim on England. You might remember that King Swain of Denmark had also been telling people that King Edward promised him the kingdom in yet another secret meeting. Now, like William, we have no way of knowing if this happened. Personally, I suspect it's a complete fabrication, and Swain was just jumping on the bandwagon because he knew nobody would call him on it. But even if Eddie had made such a promise, as we've already discussed, it had no real force of law under the English system. Unfortunately for England, though, no one but the English gave a damn about the English system. So Tostig urging Swain to make war and become the next king of England wasn't as wild and crazy as it might seem at first, at least not by 11th century standards. But when Tostig suggested it, Swain said no. Harold was his friend and cousin after all, and it probably felt a little weird to have a guy ask you to murder his own brother. And probably trying to get this whole sorry mess to come to a close, King Swain instead tried to appease Tostig and get him to agree to drop this whole thing. And because Tostig's biggest complaint against King Harold was that he'd been stripped of the earldom of Northumbria, King Swain offered to make Tostig a jarl in Denmark. But Tostig wasn't interested. Because for Tostig, this wasn't about an earldom. This was something much deeper. And nothing that Swain could offer was going to heal that wound. And so, Tostig left the court of his cousin, the king. And interestingly, according to Poitiers, King Swain of Denmark also had an agreement to not interfere with Normandy as the Duke sought to press his claims against Harold. So, assuming that Poitiers was providing an accurate depiction, it's possible that Swain was up to something here. Because, on the one hand, it feels like Swain was just being gentle with Tostig. The malcontent brother was treated with honor in his court, and he was even offered a position of power just to get him to stop interfering with his brother. But at the same time that Swain was doing that and refusing to get involved in Tostig's cause, he was at the same time assuring that Duke William could go forward with his invasion without any interference. So I think Swain had some sort of strategy in mind here. He was balancing interests, but it's difficult to know precisely what he had in mind. And the best theory that I've read is that Swain was underestimating the Normans. And that he was hoping that William and his army would soften up Harold, And that would make a future Danish conquest much easier. After all, Swain had that super secret promise that the crown was actually his. But whatever he had in mind, Swain turned down Tostig. And for Tostig, he really was running out of options. He turned to many of the most powerful men in Europe. He traveled to Duke William, to his father in law, Count Baldwin, to King Malcolm of Scotland, and even to his cousin, King Swain of Denmark. And none of them were willing to support him in this war. Some had treated him kindly, and some had even tried to placate his rage. But not one of them was willing to go to war. And so Tostig turned to the last person he could think of, to a man whose exploits were already legendary. An eminent Vikinger, a war leader, a poet, a Varangian, and a king. Tostig was turning to a man who was so damn sexy that empresses conspired to claim him, and a man so bold that he turned the empress down and escaped her prison so he could return to his true love a man who even now in his 50s was surrounded by some of the North's most ferocious warriors and was a force to be reckoned with on the battlefield. Tostig, at long last, had made his way to Norway and to the court of King Harald Hadrada.